Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Charles Arthur Whitmore Monckton, 1873-1936, was a British colonial official and explorer who served in Papua New Guinea, then known as British New Guinea, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Monckton was born in 1873 and was educated at Bedford School in England. In 1895, he moved to British New Guinea where he initially worked as a recruiter of native laborers for plantations. He later joined the British New Guinea Armed Constabulary, eventually rising to the rank of resident magistrate. Monckton spent a significant amount of his time in British New Guinea on expeditions and explorations of the territory. He was the first European to climb Mount Victoria and was involved in several other pioneering expeditions. His experiences during these trips were often dangerous as they included encounters with previously uncontacted indigenous tribes and hazardous local wildlife. Monckton's observations and experiences during his time in Papua New Guinea formed the basis of several books, including some experiences of a New Guinea resident magistrate. These works provide important historical and ethnographic records of Papua New Guinea during the era of British colonial rule, although they also reflect the biases and attitudes of that era. After returning to England in 1906, Monckton continued to write and lecture about his experiences in Papua New Guinea. He died in 1936. Overall, Charles Monckton's life and work offer important insights into the history of British colonialism in Papua New Guinea. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account CZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 In the year 1895, I found myself at Cooktown in Queensland, age 23, accompanied by a fellow adventurer, F. H. Sylvester, and armed with 100 pounds, an outfit particularly unsuited to the tropics, and a letter of introduction from the then Governor of New Zealand, the Earl of Glasgow, to the Lieutenant Governor of British New Guinea, Sir William McGregor. After two or three weeks of waiting, we took passage by the male schooner Myrtle, 150 tons, one of two schooners owned by Messrs. Burns, Philp and Company, of Sydney, and subsidized by the British New Guinea government to carry monthly mails to that possession. In fact, they were then the only means of communication between New Guinea and the rest of the world. These two vessels, after a checkered career in the South Seas, as slavers then euphoniously termed in Australia labor vessels had, 
by the lapse of time and purchased by a firm of high repute and keen commercial ambition, now been promoted to the dignity of carrying HM mails, government stores for the administration of New Guinea, and supplies to the branches of the firm at Samurai and Port Moresby, and were, under the energetic superintendence of their respective masters, Steele and Inman, extending the commercial interests of their owners throughout both the British and German territories bordering on the Coral Sea. Good old ships long since done with, the bones of one lie scattered on a reef, the other one last I saw her was a coal hulk in a Queensland port. And good old Scotch firm of trade grabbers that own them, sending their ships, in spite of any risk, wherever a possible bobby was to be made, and taking their hundred percent of profit with the same dour front they took their frequently troubled loss. Mopping up the German trade until the day came when the heavily subsidized ships of the Norddeutscher Lloyd drove them out, as well they might, for in one scale hung the efforts of a small company of British merchants, unassisted as ever by its country or government, the other, a practically imperial company backed by the resources of a vast empire. But to return to the Myrtle, then lying in the bay off the mouth of the Endeavour River, to which we were ferried in one of our own boats, perched on the top of hen coops filled with screeching poultry, several protesting pigs, and two goats, all mixed up with a belated mailbag, parcels sent by local residents to friends in New Guinea, and three hot and particularly cross seamen. The goats we learned later were destined to serve as mutton for the government house table. The pigs and hens were a little private venture of the ship's cook, these being intended for barter with natives. On our arrival at the ship's side, we were promptly boosted up a most elusive rope ladder by the seamen who had ferried us across, the schooner meanwhile rolling in a nasty cross sea and raising the devil's own dim with her flapping sails tumbled over the bulwarks onto the deck, we were seized upon by a violent little man in a frantic state of excitement, perspiration, and bad language, and ten seconds later found ourselves helping him to haul on the tackles of the boat that brought us, which was then being hoisted in, pigs, goats, luggage, etc., holus bolus, this operation completed, our violent little man introduced himself as Mr. Wistell the ship's cook, and volunteered to show us to our berths, after which, as soon as the bustle of getting underway was over, he stated his intention of formally introducing us to the captain. Just as we were somewhat dismally becoming quite assured that our imaginations were not deceiving us as to the number of beetles and cockroaches a berth of most attenuated size could contain, also beginning to find that the motions of a schooner of 150 tons were decidedly upsetting to our stomachs, after those of big vessels, Mr. Wistell returned in, diving into a locker, produced a bottle of whiskey, some soda water, and four tumblers. Three of the latter he placed with the other materials in the fiddle of the cabin's table, the remaining tumbler he held behind his back. Then politely bowing to us, Mr. Wistell signed that we were to precede him up the companionway onto the poop, where a red-faced, cheery-looking little man, clothed in immaculate white ducks, 
gaze fixedly at the sails or at the man at the wheel, or regard that the helmsman looked as if he would willingly have done without. To him Mr. Wistel marched, and then Mr. Sylvester Captain Inman Captain Inman Mr. Monkton etc. Never did Clapham Dancing Master receive the bows of his class with greater dignity and grace than did Captain Inman receive those which, modeling our deportment on that of Mr. Wistel, we made him. Then Mr. Wistel, still carrying the tumbler behind his back, spake thus, Perhaps, Captain Inman, you would like to offer the gentleman a little something in the cabin? Captain Inman unbent, Billy, the mate has the blasted fever, send the bosun. Upon the appearance of that potentate and his having apparently taken over the command, by dint of fixing the man at the wheel with a bassless glare, Captain Inman led the way to the cabin where Mr. Wistel, kindly placing a glass in each of our hands, drew attention to the bottle and, with deprecating little coughs directed towards his commander, modestly backed away. Captain Inman, however, was well versed in the etiquette the occasion demanded and rose to it. What, Billy, only three glasses? We want another. Out shot Mr. Whistle's glass from behind his back and the occasion was complete. Two days of violent seasickness then intervened, the misery of which was broken only by the visits of Mr. Wistel, or his better acquaintance now permitted us to call him, Billy, bearing mutton broth prepared from goat. These animals, by the way, appeared to be indigenous to the streets of Cooktown and to frequent them in large herds, their sustenance seems to be gleaned from the rubbish heaps and backyards, for of grass, at the time I was there, there was none, and their camping places were for choice the doorsteps and verandas of the hotels, from which vantage points, at frequent intervals, the slumbers of the lodgers were cheered by the sound of violent strife, and sweetened by the peculiar fragrance, diffused by ancient goats. Then came one fine and memorable morning where a cheerful little skipper called us to look at Samurai, at that time called by the hideous name of Dinner Island, towards the anchorage of which we were slowly moving, the while, from every direction, a swarm of canoes paddled furiously towards us, crowded with fuzzy-headed natives, all eager to earn a few sticks of tobacco, by assisting in the discharge of the cargo we carried. The canoes were warned off pending the arrival of a health officer to grant pratique, and that official soon appeared in the person of Mr. R. E. Armit, a well-set-up, soldierly-looking man of about fifty years of age. Poor Armit, long since killed by the deadly malaria of the Northern Division. Mr. Armit was sub-collector of customs and goodness knows what else at Samurai, and was himself an extraordinary personality. An accomplished linguist, widely read and traveled, I never found a subject about which Armit did not know something and usually a very great deal. He, however, did not possess a faculty for making or retaining money and did possess a particularly caustic tongue and pen, which, when the mood took him, he would exercise even upon his superior officers, hence he was frequently in hot water and never lacked enemies. Samurai boasted neither wharf nor jetty, 
Our cargo was therefore simply shot over the side into the multitude of canoes and thence ferried to the beach with such assistance as the ship's boats could afford. Dinner Island, or as I shall from now on term it, Samurai, is an island of about 50 acres. The hill, which forms the center of the island, rises from what was then a malodorous swamp surrounded by a strip of coral beach. The whole island was a gazetted penal district and the town consisted of the residency, a fine roomy bungalow built by the imperial government for the then commissioner, General Sir Peter Scratchley, the first of New Guinea officials to be claimed by malaria and now the headquarters of the resident magistrate for the Eastern Division, a small three-room building of native grass and round poles dubbed the subcollector's house, a jail of native material, the roof of which served as a bond, store for dutiable goods, and a cemetery, the three latter appeared to be well filled. There was also a small single-roomed galvanized iron building which served as a customs house, and it was employed a clerk, unpaid, he was an affable gentleman of mixed French and Greek parentage and was at the time awaiting his trial for murder. Two small stores, the one owned by Burns, Philp and Company, of Sydney, and the other by Mr. William Witten, now the Omble. William Witten, MLC, completed the main buildings. Mr. Witten was the son of a Queen's messenger since dead of malaria and possessed an adventurous disposition which had taken him off to sea as a boy. His first appearance in New Guinea was as one of the personal guard of Sir Peter Scratchley, a body which Sir William McGregor replaced with his fine native constabulary. Wooden had saved money enough to purchase a small cutter with which he had begun trading for Beshtemir in the Trobriand Islands. While dealing with the natives for that commodity, he had discovered that pearls of a fair quality existed in a small oyster forming one of the staple foods of the natives. Wooden purchased large quantities of the pearls from the natives for almost nothing and had he only been able to keep his discovery to himself would have had fortune in his grasp. Unfortunately for him, the sale of his prize in Australia brought down upon him a host of other competitors and the natives, having discovered that the white man was keenly desirous of obtaining what were to them worthless stones, raised their prices higher and higher until there was little to be gained in the trade. Wooden, however, had made enough to bring a young brother from England purchase a bigger and better vessel, also a large quantity of merchandise. At the day of writing, Wooden Brothers owned numerous plantations, several steamers and sailing vessels, conduct a banking business, have branches in the gold fields, and are the largest employers of labor in the country. In 1895, however, this greatness was as yet undreamed of by them. Other than the residency and the glorified sardine box doing duty as the custom house, the only other building in Samurai formed of European materials by which I mean sawn timber and fastened with nails was the bungalow occupied by Burns, Philp's manager, and situated on perhaps the best site there. Gangs of prisoners native were engaged quarrying in the hill of Samurai and filling up the swamp, a palpably necessary work. Curiously enough, in a pleasantly written little book by Colonel Kenneth McKay, CB, 
entitled Across Papua, I noticed a reference to this work, which was ultimately the means of stamping malaria out of the place. The author attributed it, amongst others, to Dr. Jones, a health officer who came to New Guinea in recent years. This statement is quite incorrect. The credit of banishing malaria from samurai belongs to Sir William McGregor and to him alone. A few sheds, occupied by boat builders and carpenters, scattered along the beach, complete the buildings of samurai. Of hotels and accommodation houses there were none, but then there was no traveling public to accommodate gold diggers to and from the islands of Sudist and St. Agnan camped in their tents, which as a rule consisted of a single sheet of calico stretched over a pole, traders lived in their vessels. Alcoholic refreshment was dispensed at the stores. Burns, Phillips' manager, for instance, or one of the Wittens, ceasing from their bookkeeping labors to serve thirsty customers with lager beer or more potent fluids over the store counter. Wooden Brothers had a large roof balcony with no sides, situated at the back of the store, and here at night, as to a general clubhouse, foregathered all the Europeans of the island. Under a center table was placed a supply of varied drinks, and as men came in and bottles were emptied, they were hurled over the edge onto the soft coral sand. In the morning, one of the Wittens caused the bottles to be collected by a native boy, counted them, and avoided the trouble of bookkeeping by the simple method of dividing the sum total of bottles by the number of men he knew, or that his boy told him, and visited the house. Each man, therefore, whether a thirsty person or not, was charged exactly the same as his neighbor. All samurai was planted with coconut palms, the dodging of falling nuts from which, in windy weather, served to keep the inhabitants spry. Pajamas were the almost universal wear, varied in the case of some traders by a strip of turkey red twill, worn petticoat fashion, and a cotton vest. Among the traders were two picturesque ruffians, like in nothing, save the ability with which they conducted their business and dodged hanging. Each had spent his life trading in the South Seas and had amassed a fair fortune. Of them and their exploits I have heard endless yarns. Of one of these men, who was known far and wide through the South Seas as Nicholas the Greek heaven knows why, for his real name sounded English and his reckless courage was certainly not typical of the modern Greek the following stories are told. A vessel had been cut out in one of the New Guinea or Luisade Islands which it was I have forgotten and the crew massacred. When this became known, a man of war or government ship was sent to punish the murderers and in especial to secure a native chief who was primarily responsible. The punitive ship came across Nicholas and engaged him as pilot and interpreter, he being offered 100 pounds when the man wanted was secured. Nicholas safely piloted his charge to some remote island where the inhabitants, doubtless having guilty consciences, promptly fled for the hills where it was impossible for ordinary Europeans to follow them. He then offered to go alone to try and locate them and, armed with a ship's cutlass and revolver, disappeared on his quest. Some days elapsed, then in the night a small canoe appeared alongside the ship 
from which emerged Nicholas, bearing in his hand a bundle. Marching up to the officer commanding, he undid it and rolled at the officer's feet a gory human head, remarking, here is your man, I couldn't bring the law of him. I'll thank you for that hundred. Another story was that Nicholas on one occasion was attacked and frightfully slashed about by his native crew and then thrown overboard, he shamming dead. Sinking in the water he managed to get under the keel, along which he crawled like a crawfish until he came to the rudder, upon which he roosted under the counter until night fell and his crew slept. Then he climbed on board, secured a tomahawk, and either killed or drove overboard the whole crew, they thinking he was an avenging ghost. This done, badly wounded and unassisted, he worked his vessel to a neighboring island, where, being sickened and disgusted with men, he shipped and trained a crew of native women, with whom he sailed for many years, in fact, I think, until the day came when Sir W. McGregor appeared upon the scene and passed the native labor ordinance, which, amongst other things, prohibited the carrying of women on vessels. Of Nicholas also is told the story that once, in the battle pre-protectorate days, so many charges were brought against him by missionaries and merchantmen that a man of war was sent to arrest him wherever found and bring him to trial. He, through a friendly trader, got wind of the fact that he was being sought for and accordingly laid his plans for the bamboozlement of his would-be captors. Summoning his crew, he informed them that his father was dead and that as he had his father's name of Nicholas, his name must now be Peter, as the custom of his tribe was, even as that of some New Guinea peoples, viz. Not to mention the name of the dead, lest harm befall. Then he sailed in search of the pursuing warship and, eventually finding her, went on board and volunteered his services as pilot, which were gladly accepted. To all of his haunts he then guided that ship, but in all the reply of the native was the same, when questioned as to his whereabouts, we know not Nicholas, he is gone. Peter your pilot comes in his place. Nicholas is dead, and tis wrong to mention the name of the dead. It was said of him that on no part of his body could a man's hand be placed without touching the scar of some old wounded story I can fully believe. The second of this interesting couple was known as German Harry, a man of insignificant appearance and little physical strength, but the most venomous little scorpion, when thoroughly roused, it has ever been my lot to meet. At the same time, he was the most generous-hearted little man towards the hard-up and unfortunate. He had also spent a considerable portion of his time in dodging arrest or explaining certain alleged manslaughters of his before various tribunals. I remember one little specimen I witnessed of Harry's fighting methods, and from that understood why the biggest of bullies and hard cases treated him with respect. A vessel, owned and commanded by a hulking brute of a Dane, had come over from Queensland bringing, amongst other things, some recent papers, one of which contained an account of a disgraceful wife-beating case in which the Dane figured and in which he had escaped as such brutes generally do in civilized countries by the payment of a miserable fine. As Harry, the Dane, and I were sitting in a goldfield store 
Harry read the account, and then gazing at the Dane, said something in German, of which Schweinhund was the only word I understood. A glass of rum promptly smashed on Harry's teeth, followed by a bellow of rage and the thrower's rush. Harry in a single instant became a lunatic and flying like a wild cat at the other's face, kicking, biting, and clawing, bore the big man to the ground from where, in a few seconds, agonized yells of, he is eating me, told us the Dane was in dire trouble. Harry was dragged away by main force, and we found half his victim's nose bitten off, while a bloodshot and protruding eye showed how nearly his thumb had got its work in. The wife beater went off a mass of funk and misery, while Harry proceeded calmly to attend to the glass cuts on his face. You are a nice cheerful sort of little hyena, I remarked to Harry afterwards. What sort of fighting do you call that? That? Oh, that's nothing. I only wanted to frighten him or I would have had his eye out as well. He won't throw a glass at German Harry again in a hurry. Some years later I met German Harry in a Sydney street and though I had long since thought I was beyond being surprised at anything he did, he had gave me a further shock when he told me he had purchased a matrimonial agency. Chapter 2 The day following our arrival in Samurai, loud yells of sail ho from every native in the island announced that the Merry England was returning from the Mombir River, where the lieutenant, governor had been occupied in punishing the native murderers of a man named Clark, the leader of a prospecting party in search of gold and in establishing at that point for the protection of future prospectors, a police post under the gallant but ill-fated John Green. Clark's murder was destined, though no one realized it at the time, to be the beginning of a long period of bloodshed and anarchy in the Northern Division then still a portion of the Eastern Division. These events, however, belong to a later date and chapter. On her voyage south from the Mombir, the Merry England had waited at the mouth of the Musa River while Sir William McGregor traversed and mapped that stream. While so engaged, accompanied by but one officer and a single boat's crew of native police, His Excellency discovered a war party of Northeast Coast natives returning from a cannibal feast with their canoes loaded with dismembered human bodies. Descending the river, Sir William collected his native police and, attacking the raiders, dealt out condign and summary justice, which resulted in the tribes of the Lower Musa dwelling for many a year in a security to which several generations had been strangers. Some little time after the ship had cast anchor, my friend and myself received a message that Sir William was disengaged, whereupon we went on board to meet for the first time, the strongest man it has ever been my fate to look upon. Short, square, slightly bald, speaking with a strong Scotch accent, showing signs of overwork and the ravages of malaria, there was nothing in the first appearance of the man to stamp him as being out of the ordinary, but I had not been three minutes in his cabin before I realized that I was in the presence of a master of many Cromwell, a Drake, a Caesar or Napoleon his keen gray eyes looking clean through me and knew that I was being summed and weighed. Once and only once in my life 
have I felt that a man was my master in every way, a person to be blindly obeyed and one who must be right and infallible, and that was when I met Sir William McGregor. Years afterwards, in conversation with a man who had held high command, who had distinguished himself and been much decorated for services in Britain's little wars, I described the impression that McGregor had made upon me, the sort of overwhelming sense of inferiority he, unconsciously to himself, made one feel, and was told that my friend had experienced a like impression when meeting Cecil Rhodes. The story of how Sir William McGregor came to be appointed to New Guinea was to me rather an interesting one, as showing the result, in the history of a country, of a fortunate accident. It was related to me by Bishop Stonewig, to whom it had been told by the man responsible for the appointment, either Sir Samuel Griffiths, Sir Hugh Nelson, or Sir Thomas McIlrath, which of the three I have now forgotten. Sir William, at the time Dr. McGregor, was attending, as the representative of Fiji, one of the earlier conferences regarding the proposed Federation of Australasia, he had already made his mark by work performed in connection with the suppression of the revolt among the hill tribes of that crown colony. At the conference, amongst other questions, New Guinea came up for discussion, whereupon McGregor remarked, there is the last country remaining in which the Englishman can show what can be done by just native policy. The remark struck the attention of one of the delegates, by whom the mental note was made, if Queensland ever has a say in the affairs of New Guinea, and I have a say in the affairs of Queensland, you shall be the man for New Guinea. When later, New Guinea was declared a British possession, Queensland had a very large say in the matter, and the man who had made the mental note happening to be Premier, he caused the appointment of Administrator to be offered to McGregor, by whom it was accepted. Of Sir William, a story told me by himself will illustrate his determination of character, even at an early age, though not related with that intention. McGregor, when completing his training at a Scotch university, found his money becoming exhausted, no time could he spare from his studies in which to earn any, even with the opportunity there. Something had to be done, so McGregor called his old Scotch landlady into consultation as to ways and means. Well, Mr. McGregor, how much a week can you find? Half a crown. Well, I can do it for that. And this is how she did it. McGregor had a bowl of porridge for breakfast, nothing else, two fresh herrings or one red one, the cost of the fresh ones being identical with the cured one for dinner, and a bowl of porridge again for supper. Thus he completed his course and took the gold medal of his year. This thoroughness and grim determination McGregor still carried into his work, for instance, it was necessary for him, unless he was prepared to have a trained surveyor always with him on his expeditions, to have a knowledge of astronomy and surveying. This he took up with his usual vigor, and I once witnessed a little incident which showed not only how perfect Sir William had made himself in this subject, but also his unbounded confidence in himself. We were lying off a small island about which a doubt existed as to whether it was within the waters of Queensland or New Guinea. 
The commander of the Mary England, together with the navigating officer, took a set of stellar observations. The chief government surveyor, together with an assistant surveyor, took a second set, and Sir William took a third. The ship's party and the surveyors arrived at one result, Sir William had a slightly different one, an ordinary man would have decided that four highly competent professional men must be right and he wrong, not so, however, McGregor. Ye are both wrong, was his remark, when their results were handed to him by the commander and surveyor. They demurred, pointing out that their observations tallied. Do it again, ye don't agree with mine, and sure enough Sir William proved right and they wrong. My part in this had been to hold a bullseye lantern for Sir William to the arc of his theodolite and to endeavor to attain the immobility of a bronze statue while being devoured by gnats and mosquitoes. Therefore later I sought Stuart Russell, the chief surveyor, with the intention of working off a little of the irritation of the bites by japing at him. What sort of surveyors do you and Commander Curtis think yourselves? Got to have a bally amateur to help you, eh? Shut up, Monton, said Stuart Russell. We are surveyors of ordinary ability. Sir William is of more than that. The same sort of thing occurred with Sir William in languages. He spoke Italian to Giulianetti. Poor Giulianetti later murdered at Michio. German to Cowold. Poor Cowold two, later killed by a dynamite explosion on the Musa River and French to the members of the Sacred Heart Mission. I believe if a Russian or a Japanese had turned up, Sir William would have addressed him in his own language. Ross Johnston, at one time private secretary to Sir William, once wailed to me about the standard of erudition Sir William expected in a man's knowledge of a foreign language. Ross Johnston had been educated in Germany and knew German, as he thought, as well as his own mother tongue. Sir William, while reading some abstruse German book, struck a passage the meaning of which was to him somewhat obscure. He referred to Ross Johnston, who, far from being able to explain the passage, could not make sense of the chapter. Whereupon Sir William remarked that he thought Ross Johnston professed to know German. Ross Johnston, feeling somewhat injured, took the book to Cowold, who was a German. Cowold gave one look at it, then exclaimed, Phew! I can't understand that. It's written by a scientist for scientists. One little story about McGregor, a story I have always loved, was that on one occasion while sitting in legislative council some member, bolder than usual, asked, What happens? Your Excellency, should counsel differ with your views? Man, replied Sir William, the result would be the same. But I digress, as Bullen remarks, and shall return from stories about McGregor to his cabin and my own affairs. Sir William told my friend and myself that for two reasons he could not offer either of us employment in his service. Firstly, that the amount of money at his disposal, 12,000 pounds per annum, did not permit of fresh appointments until vacancies occurred. Secondly, that his officers must be conversant with native customs and ways of thought, which experience we were entirely lacking. 
His Excellency, however, told us that he had just received word of the discovery of gold upon Woodlark Island, to which place the ship would at once proceed, and that we might go in her, and offer we gladly accepted. Then, for the first time, I met Mr. F. P. Winter, afterwards Sir Francis Winter, Chief Magistrate of the Possession, the Honorable M. H. Moriton, Resident Magistrate of the Eastern Division, Cameron, Chief Government Surveyor, Mervyn Jones, Commander of the Mary England, and Meredith, Head Jailer. Winter had been a law officer in the service of Fiji, and upon the appointment of Sir William McGregor to New Guinea, had been chosen by him as his Chief Justice and General Right-Hand Man, the wisdom of which choice later years amply showed. Widely read, a profound thinker, possessed of a singular charm of manner, simple and unaffected to a degree, Winter was a man that fascinated everyone with whom he came in contact. I don't think he ever said an unkind word or did a mean action in his life. Every officer in the service, then and later, took his troubles to him, and every unfortunate out of the service appealed to his purse. Moriton, a younger brother of the present Earl of Ducey, had begun life in the Seaforth Highlanders, plucky, hard-working, and the best of good fellows, he was fitted to work on a New Guinea till, with his constitution shattered, an Australian government chucked him out to make room for a younger man, shortly after which he died. Cameron, the surveyor, was another good man, and wholly wrapped up in his work. Of Cameron it was said, that he imagined that surveyors were not for the purpose of surveying the earth, but that the earth was created solely for them to survey. He, good chap, was luckier than Moriton, for his fate was to die in harness, he being found sitting dead in his chair, pen in hand, with a half-written dispatch in front of him. Mervyn Jones was a particularly smart seaman and navigator, educated at Eden for other things. The sea had, however, exercised an irresistible fascination for him, being too old for the Navy, he had worked up into the Naval Reserve through the Merchant Service, and thus had come out to command the Merry England. The charts of the Coral Sea owe much to his labor, and to that also of his two officers, Rothwell and Taylor. All these officers were destined later to share a more or less common fate. Jones died of a combination of lungs and malaria, Taylor of malaria at sea, whilst Rothwell was invalid out of the service. Meredith was taking a gang of native convicts down to Sudist Island. They had been led by the New Guinea government to assist in making a road to a gold reef discovered there which was now being opened by an Australian company. It was here that he and many of his charges left their bones. Not far from Sudist flies Rossell Island, a wooded hilly land, inhabited by a small dark-skinned people differing in language and customs from all other Papuans. Personally, I do not believe they have any affinity with Papuans, either by descent or in other ways, whatever views ethnologists may hold. The Rossell Islanders have among their songs several Chinese chants, the origin of which is explained in this way. In September 1858, the ship St. Paul, bound from China to the Australian goldfields, 
and carrying some 300 Chinese coolies was wrecked on an outlying sandbank of Rossell. The European officers and crew took to the boats and made their way to Queensland, the Chinamen being left to shift for themselves. Thus abandoned to their fate, the Chinamen were discovered by the islanders and were by them liberally supplied with food and water when well fattened they were removed in canoes to the main island in lots of five and ten and they're killed and eaten. The Chinamen, when removed, were under the impression that they were merely taken in small numbers as the native canoes could only carry a few passengers at a time, being ignorant of the distance of the sea journey. As they left their awful sandbank in the canoes, they sang paeans and chants of joy, which the quick-eared natives picked up and incorporated in their songs. In 1859, but one solitary Chinaman remained of the 300, and he, fortunate man, was taken off Rossell by a passing French steamer and landed in Australia, where history or scandal says he later pursued the occupation of Slygrug Cellar in a Victorian gold rush, and being convicted thereof, was later pardoned in consideration of his sufferings and being the sole survivor of 300. From Sudis the Merry England went on to Woodlark Island, from whence the discovery of gold had been reported by a couple of traders, Lob and Eid. These two men were a very good example of the old goldfields practice of dividing mates. Lob was professional gold or other mineral prospector who had sought for gold in any land where it was likely to occur. When successful, his gains, however great, soon slipped away. When unsuccessful, he depended on a mate to finance and feed him in Digger's language grub stake him until such time as his unerring instinct should again locate a fresh find. Eid was a New Guinea trader owning a coconut plantation on the Loughlin Isles together with a small vessel. Eid landed Lob on Woodlark with a number of reliable natives and keeping him going with tools, provisions, etc. at last had his reward by word from Lob of the discovery of payable gold. Thereupon they have reported their discovery and applied for a reward claim to the administration together with the request that the island should be proclaimed a gold field and at the same time had informed their trader friends, some twenty in all, of what was to be gained at the island. Lob and Eid, with their twenty friends, formed the European population of the island when the Merry England arrived there, with the exception of Lob, there was not an experienced miner in the lot. The twenty were a curious collection of men, an ex-captain in Les Chasseurs d'Afrique, whom later I got to know very well, but who, poor chap, was always most unjustly suspected by the diggers of being an escapee from the French convict establishment in New Caledonia, merely because he was a Frenchman, an unfrocked priest, who by the way was a most plausible and finished scoundrel, and the son of the premier of one of the Australian colonies, these now, with Eden myself, constitute the sole survivors of the men who heard Sir William declare the island a gold field. Here it was that an ex-British resident and the son of a famous Irish churchman jostled shoulders with men whose real names were only known to the police in the various countries from which they hailed. Jimmy from heaven, an angelic person, 
who was once sentenced to be hanged for murder and the rope breaking gained a reprieve and pardon hence his sobriquet greasy bill bill the boozer french pete and the dove a most truculent scoundrel the names they answer to sufficiently explain the men all nationalities and all shades of character from good to damn bad they however all held two virtues in common a dauntless courage and a large charity to the unfortunate traits which will perhaps stand them in better stead in the bourne to which they have gone than they did in new guinea